So you guys, uh, you guys know what an intervention is, right? You all know what an intervention is? Any of you ever been involved in an intervention? You know what it is? You know, it's like friends and family. There's someone in the, in the, in the, in the circle there that's having um, some type of addiction problem, usually is what it is. You know, either alcohol or drugs or uh, maybe, you know, pornography, maybe an eating disorder, something that is destructive in the person's life. And the family and friends, of course, they see this going on in, in their life. And so they gather together to confront, to confront this person. And they do this because they love him or her. And they do this because they want to see a change, because they are destroying themselves by giving themselves to this addiction. I looked up a couple of synonyms for intervention and it, it, I really liked it. It said, it said to interfere, to, to get involved, to intrude. Um, that's what these loved ones do. They, they intrude and get involved in, in the life of this one who is struggling with normally some type of addiction. You know, that's what God has done, right? God has, God has conducted an intervention He's come to get you and me off this self-destructive habit that we have called sin. He's come to interfere. He's come to get involved. He's come to intrude. For God so loved the world. What? You guys know, I know you guys know this verse, right? <laughs> he came. You know, God is the, the grand cosmic interventionist. He's come to get you and me off sin. And you heard the text read earlier. That's one of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. You remember what Adam and Eve did after they sinned, right? We've talked about this many times. I use this example quite often. They went looking for God immediately. They wanted to get God, they wanted to get with God quickly. They wanted to get it all resolved. They went looking for God. Is that how it happened? What happened? Someone tell me. God came. God came seeking them. They weren't seeking God at all. You know, the Scripture tells us that men don't seek God. Not really. I know we like to think we do. But men don't seek God. Romans chapter 1. Men are haters of God. If we actually understand what the Bible's saying about the, the nature of fallen man, th there's no question here. God came for man. Not the other way around. And I can remember when I first was converted, I, uh, I started to read through the Bible. And I hit Genesis chapter 3 and I saw it was God that came for me. It's always been like this. We'd still be in the bushes. We'd still be hiding with Adam and Eve in the bushes if God had not come. God comes to seek and save that which was lost. He is the great interventionist. So don't, be, don't pat yourself on the back. You're not a Christian because you sought God. You're a Christian because He sought you. Beloved, this is biblical. I hope you understand this. If you don't understand it, you need to get into the Bible and study and understand what God has done. Romans chapter 3 tells us there's none righteous, not even one. There's not one man on the planet who's righteous. There's not one. I know there are a lot who think they're righteous. The Bible says there's not any who are. There are none who understand. I know there are a lot of men and women on the earth who, who are haughty before God. They think they've got it all figured out. The Bible says there's not one who understands. The Bible also says there are none, as I just said, who seek for God. There's not one. There's not one. There's never been one since the fall. There's never 
been one. So Adam and Eve weren't looking for God. God came looking for us. You got to love that. It's the only thing. I think the, the, in the men's Bible study a couple weeks ago, we, we saw this. It's the only thing the Bible says that, that God seeks. God is self-contained. He's self-sufficient. He's happy in Himself. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't create from need. He creates from fullness. I hope you guys have a biblical view, a biblical view of God. The only thing God, the only thing the Bible ever says that God seeks, it's us. I don't know, it gets me jazzed. <laughs> if you think about it, maybe for 60 seconds, you have to be jazzed about that. He doesn't need anything. But he comes after us. He didn't go after the angels. The angels fell, he judged them. We fell, he came after us. Beloved, this is an awesome thing. This is a worship provoking thing. If this doesn't cause you to worship, you're not paying attention. <laughs> or you're not, you're not understanding what God has done. You know, I had a friend in college, and he used to work with racing greyhounds. You guys, have you, you guys ever seen the, the dogs that run around the track? You know why they run around the track, right? What are they chasing? They're chasing a mechanical rabbit, right? It's not a real rabbit. But they got these stupid dogs chasing this mechanical rabbit because these stupid dogs, they think it's real. And I always thought this was the perfect illustration for sin. You know, for what fallen man does. We're chasing sin. We think it's going to satisfy us, just like that dog thinks that mechanical rabbit is going to satisfy him. And so we're out here in the world, we're chasing all kinds of stupid stuff. We're running around in a circle for no good reason. I always thought it was a perfect illustration. A perfect illustration. You know, my friend told me, if the dog ever catches the rabbit, it's over. He'll never run again. He knows it's worthless. <laughs> you know, He knows that it's worthless. I just always loved that illustration. The human heart is chasing after that which does not satisfy. You know what Oscar Wilde said, right? There are two tragedies in life. Who knows what they are? Two tragedies. One is not getting what you want. What's the other one? Getting it! Because it's like that dog catching that mechanical rabbit. Once you get it, you find out it's a lie. It will not satisfy me. It does not fill me up. It does not make me whole. We've said it many, many times in this place. You've got a God-sized hole in your heart and you can pour the whole cosmos in there and it still won't fill you up. You must have. You must have Jesus Christ. I've shared this with you many times. John Piper's definition of sin. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the infinite value and beauty of God for some fleeting, inferior, sugar-coated substitute. Don't you love that? It's just great definitions. So God has staged a radical intervention in the lives of His people to get them off this suicidal and self-destructive chase that we're on. And so God does an intervention. That's what He's doing in the lives of His people. One of the things that we've seen thus far in 1 John as we've sort of surveyed 1 John, we're not really going through it verse by verse, but we're kind of surveying it so we get the sense of it, 
It's an urgent message. First John brings an urgent message to the modern church. It's like John Gerstner said, one of my favorite theologians. He says, getting faith right is so important that there are many counterfeits. Satan is coming up with many counterfeits, many with the, the name Christian written above them. Systems of works and other false systems. But John tells us, First John tells us, you know, I've, I've told you two or three times already, you don't have to ask the preacher if you're a Christian. You don't need to go talk to the priest. You just need to read First John. If you look like First John, you're a Christian. If you don't look like First John, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter how many prayers you prayed or how many ordinances you did or sacraments or anything. It doesn't matter. First John is biblical Christianity. First John is the book of assurance. And John is fighting false teachers. We talked a little bit about it last week. These teachers are saying, you know, you can be a Christian and just live any way you want. Now, isn't that ec epidemic in the modern church? I'm a Christian. And then you see them out in the world living just like the world. They have, they have no, there's no distinction at all. We, it's epidemic in the modern church. It's epidemic. It's like if you say the right things, I did the right, I did the formula, I prayed the prayer, I got baptized, the preacher said I was a Christian, that settles it. Wrong! That doesn't settle it. What settles it is do you look like 1 John? Do you look like first, do you look like a son or a daughter of the king? Do you look like one? And this is what John is talking to us about. I love this book. And it's so important in this last day. We talked about it last week. This is the last hour. And the deceptions are rampant. Both Catholic, Protestant, and otherwise. Men have, we talked about it last week, men have taken the Word of God, what we received from the beginning. You remember last week? John says, hold to what you received from the beginning, the gospel that came off the mouth of Jesus, the gospel from the, the, the lips of the apostle. Hold to that. If men add to it or take away from it, it's the spirit of Antichrist. This is what we talked about last week. And beloved, the spirit of Antichrist is everywhere. It's everywhere. Taking the place of Jesus or profaning Jesus. It's the no repentance, no obedience, no holiness, no righteousness gospel. It's sub-Christian. It's sub-biblical. It's aberrant. It is not the truth. People say, I'm a, if you say, you know, if someone says I'm a Christian, well, you're supposed to just take for granted that they are. But if we read the Bible, if we actually read our Bibles, we understand that it's a much deeper, it's a much deeper issue. We have a book on the book table. I don't think there are any there now. Yeah, I think there was one. I saw it earlier. It's the best book I've ever read about the gospel, the biblical gospel. It's, it's by John MacArthur, and the book is The Gospel According to Jesus. I remember when this book came out. It came out in the late 80s. I bought it and read it in one day. And it was the best defense of the biblical gospel I have ever read. If you have any confusion about the biblical gospel, you should read this book. It is an excellent, an excellent book.
a famous American theologian. He wrote the foreword to the original. I don't think his foreword is still in the book. But he wrote the foreword of the original book about this no repentance, no obedience, no holiness, no righteousness gospel that's so prevalent in the modern church. And he calls it a tragic error. Then he goes on to say this, it's the idea, and wherever did it come from, that one could claim to be a Christian but never actually follow Jesus. Beloved, this is biblically unrecognizable. <laughs> you, don't, you don't see this in Scripture. You only see it in the modern church. Oh, I'm a Christian. I prayed the prayer. There's no magic prayer in the Bible. There's no magic ordinance in the Bible. You're either in relationship with God or you're not. You may be religious, but that's not going to get you anywhere with God. It's not going to get you anywhere with the Lord. I love, I love what James Boyce calls it. He says it's, it's reductionist Christianity. Reductionist Christianity. It's everywhere. Again, Catholic and Protestant. We've been going through 1 John. We understand 1 John is a mirror for us to look into to understand if, if, um, if we're Christian or not. That's what the book is for. That's what the book is about. And let me just give you quickly just a, a list of the things we've heard John say to us. Real Christians, chapter 1, verse 6, practice the truth. Real Christians, chapter 1, verse 7, we walk in the light. Real Christians, 2, verse 3, keeps Christ's commandments. Real Christians, chapter 2, verse 5, keeps the Word of Christ. Real Christians, chapter 2, verse 6, walks in the same manner as Jesus walked. Real Christians, 2, uh, verse 14, has the Word of God abiding in them. Real Christians, chapter 2, verse 28, abide in Christ. Real Christians, chapter 2, verse 29, practice righteousness. You say, Jim, I've heard that enough. I don't need to hear it anymore. Apparently, God thinks we need to hear it again because we're going to hear it again tonight. <laughs> this is something that God wants to make sure His people understand what it means to call yourself a disciple of Christ. You know, beloved, don't you know? You're called to discipleship. You're not just simply called to be a church member. There seems to be some confusion in the modern church. Oh, I I'm a church member. So what? Jesus never called anybody to be a church member. He called men and women to be what? Disciples. Are you? Are you a disciple? Do you go where He goes? Do you do what He, he, he does? Do you, do you speak like He speaks? Beloved, we're called to be disciples. No less than... Peter, James, and John, and the rest. No less. No less. It's what's, you know, modern Christianity's been domesticated. It's been tamed. You know, we talk a lot about that in here. It's, it's been changed. Men have changed it. Men take these, this beautiful gospel and they, they've tried to, to make it, you know, manageable and create a, a to-do list out of it. It's been a tragedy what has happened in much of the modern church. God could not be clearer. And with great force and clarity tonight, He's going to remind us that reductionist Christianity is not biblical Christianity. And it's not saving Christianity. So you heard the text read, and I won't reread it. It's not a difficult passage to understand. You really get the sense of it. The word sin and sinned appears ten times in 
seven verses. The word lawlessness and not practicing righteousness appears three times. You don't have to be a Ph.D. to understand this text. You have to be a Ph.D. to mess it up. I think a 10-year-old can read this text and understand exactly what God is saying. You have to come to it with, an, with a biased mind and a biased heart not to understand what the Lord is saying to us. True Christians practice righteousness. Do you practice righteousness? This is one of the things that we will talk about. You know, I, I think this is one reason you hear so many muddled testimonies in the modern church. You know, you ask someone, well, how did you become a Christian? And, and it, they're all over the place. They don't really know. Well, I think maybe when I was a kid, but then all this stuff happened. And, but, then, but I wasn't really, I, I came to the Lord, I, I received the Lord in my heart, but I didn't make Him Lord. Then you're not a Christian. If you don't make Him Lord, you're not a Christian. You can't just do a magic formula and, and pretend to be one. It doesn't work like that. I think this bad theology that permeates much of the modern church is, is one of the reasons we have these, these testimonies that make no rational sense. Beloved, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you may be a church member, but you're not a Christian. Beloved, <laughs> We should all understand this. We should all understand this. God says everywhere in the Bible that doing confirms being. Doing confirms being. What you do on the outside confirms what's on the inside. And one of the things I like to say, I like to say it like this. Some of you have heard me say it like this. We don't have to become disciples to be saved. We have to become disciples because why? We are saved. Man, there's a world of difference between... I mean, there's a great distinction there. We don't come, become disciples to be saved. We have to become them because we are. Because God has done that heart transplant. We've been changed. And we love Him. We're not religious in the sense that we're keeping rules to impress God what does God say about the, what men do before Him? He says they're fil it's filthy rags. Actually, it's, it's, pretty, it's worse than that. He calls it menstrual rags. You trying to impress me with your religion. But God, God does a work in the hearts of His people. <laughs> God does a work in the hearts of His people. And after He does that work, man, we have to be disciples. We have to be. You can't stop me. I'm going to be a disciple. I love Him. He's my Creator. He's my Redeemer. He's my God. I love Him. More than anything else in the world. We've been talking about it the last several weeks. Religion does not impress God at all. In fact, I would have to say that it makes Him pretty mad that man would, fallen man would ever assume that his filthy rag works, even religious works, would earn him anything before the Lord. Look at verse 4. 
Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. God is saying the true Christian has an inbred incompatibility with sin. We have an inbred incompatibility with sin. Why do real Christians seek to keep God's commandments? Again, is it because we're good little boys and girls and, and we're religious? Is, is that why we do it? Are we trying to earn our salvation? No, as I said a few minutes ago, it's because we love the Lord. John chapter 14. It's because we love Him. It's not because we ought to do this thing or we should do this thing. Yes, we ought and we should, but ultimately it's because we love the Lord. We seek to please the Lord. We don't seek simply to please ourselves. We seek to please our awesome and beautiful God. The born-again Christian is a lover of God as opposed to what Romans says about your, the natural man, the fallen man. He's a hater of God. The true Christian is a lover of God. This is what the Bible is saying to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, the believer has a, not only a new heart, but a new mind. We have the mind of Christ. You know what Paul says, in, or what, the, what is said there in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we've been born again by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The miracle, the supernatural miracle of God has happened in our heart. We've been, we've been uh, the, inter, the great cosmic divine interventionist has, has invaded our lives. This is what happens in the believer. God invades our lives. And we're changed forever. We are changed forever. Before conversion, we may have been religious, but we didn't really care too much. We might show up for church, right? If I could squeeze it in. If I didn't have anything better to do, I'll go to church. I know God will be pleased. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the way the unbeliever thinks? Or the, the, the Christian church member? Isn't that the way the Christian church member thinks? But the real believer says, I want to go to church. I want to hear the Word of God preached. I want to bring an offering of praise and a, an offering of money to my great God. I only have a few Sundays left on this planet and I'm going to be sure to worship Him. While I have the opportunity, I'm going to worship this awesome and great God I always remember what Jen Pescor said. He said, you know, she said, you know, I just didn't find Jesus very interesting at one point in my life. But then I did. This is what happens <laughs> in the believer's life. You know, when you're an unbeliever, you don't really care. I mean, you, you might, you know, tip your hat to him. You might show up at church or something. You might do some good deeds or something. But you don't really care. You know, I can remember when I was, I was a religious man. I mean, I, I, my parents raised me in the church, and I used to go all the time. I didn't care. I didn't want to, but I had to because my parents made me go. So I was baptized when I was eight like I was supposed to. I got baptized. It didn't mean anything to me. I mean, I can still remember in college, at university, some Jesus freak came up and started uh, you know, giving me a, a, sharing his testimony with me and witnessing to me, and I just I cursed him out. I mean, I was a loser. <laughs> I was such... I wouldn't have given you five cents for Jesus. When I was 28, it all changed. This is what John's talking about. It's the change. Jesus is not very interesting, and then He becomes the most interesting being in the cosmos to you. 
the most interesting person in the world to you. Verse 4 here. Verse 4, we're talking about lawlessness and the practice of lawlessness. This is very important. I want you to make sure we get this. I'm going to hit it twice, so make sure that we get it. In the Greek, the present tense is an ongoing, continuous action. Now, you could read 1 John and you could start to think, well, I'm not a Christian at all because I do have sin in my life. But here's the thing you have to understand. What the Bible is saying, it's talking about those who practice sin. It's a big difference between uh, a singular sin and practicing sin. And we have to understand this in this text or we will be in pretty bad shape. To practice sin is to live in an unbroken pattern of defiance against God and His law. An unbroken pattern of rebellion. An unbroken pattern of, I don't really care what He says! I'm going to do what I want. This is what God is talking about here. You live your life as if there were no law, as if there were no lawgiver. You really could care less. This is what John is talking about. The word practice means to go on in sin. The believer doesn't go on in sin. The believer still sins, but he's not going on in sin. He's not practicing sin in some unbroken pattern. So there's, there's, there's a lot at stake here for us to understand this, and we need to understand this. There's a lot of confusion about 1 John. I, I saw five or six different interpretations here. I mean, there's just a lot of confusion about this. So, beloved, we need to make sure that we understand. You remember what Jesus told the, the religious guys over in Matthew chapter 7? They had those impressive religious resumes. You know, they were casting out demons and doing miracles and stuff. You remember what Jesus said to them? <laughs> it's a famous passage. I know you know. Jesus said, I don't know who you are. You never really loved me. It was really all about you and your religion. I don't know you. Depart from me, you who do what? Someone tell me. Practice lawlessness. Your religion was lawlessness, is what Jesus says. Because it wasn't about me. You didn't ever love me. You didn't keep the law to, 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 to honor me. You kept it to be seen as righteous before men. I mean, the Lord really hammers these guys. He just hammers these guys. They had been playing religion, but they had never truly loved the Lord. Look at this unqualified, all-inclusive language in these verses. Verse 4, Jesus says, or pardon me, John says everyone. Verse 6, it says no one. Verse 9, it says no one. Verse 10, it says anyone. The point here is there's no middle place to be. You're either practicing righteousness or you're practicing lawlessness. You can't stand in the middle place and say, I'm a church member. I'm safe. I belong to the church. I did an ordinance. I prayed a prayer. I did the sacraments. No. You're either practicing righteousness or you're practicing lawlessness. God says you can't stand in the middle. You either love me or you don't. You either do what I say or you don't. And we've been making the point all along, we're not talking about sinless perfection. You know, some fringe Christian groups will teach sinless perfection. This is, this is aberrant theology. It's just simply not the truth. And if we understand all that 1 John is saying to us, 
then we will understand that fact. If you jump down to verse 10, by this the children, here it is, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. It does not matter. Do you have that new heart in you? Do you love God? And are, does your life reflect the fact that you love God? You love His law. You love the law giver. Again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about an unbroken pattern of disdain for the Word of God and for what the Lord has called us to do. I, I know we made much of this a couple of weeks ago. Um, chapter 2, verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know Him and He does not keep His commandments is what? Does anyone remember? He's what? He's a liar. You know, John, <laughs> John just says it. He doesn't try to make it soft. He doesn't try to make it sound pretty. He just says what it is. You know, he loves, he's not trying to be popular. He's trying to save souls. He's trying to wake up uh, people who are merely religious. He's trying to shake us. and say, are you really a Christian? This is what real Christians do. This is what they really look like. That's what He's trying to say to us. So let me ask you, beloved. What is, what's true about you and your Christianity? Have you been engaging in reductionist Christianity? Do you claim to be a Christian but you do not practice righteousness? Do you claim to belong to Christ but you do not keep His commandments? God has brought you here tonight if that's true of you, to intervene in your life and get you off that lie that you might genuinely come to Him and be saved. That you might genuinely enter into relationship with the Lord. Reductionist Christianity will take you to hell. There will be millions who think they're Christians because they did a prayer, or they did this, or they did that, they will, Jesus will say, I don't know you. You're not one of my sheep. You never loved me. You never followed me. I don't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Beloved, it's the last hour. We talked about it last week. Jim, you're preaching hard. I know. It's the last hour. Boy, I got jazzed up after last week. It's the last hour. I'm never going to preach soft again. Ever. <laughs> never it's a waste of time I'm not going to waste your time I'm not going to waste the Lord's time it's the last hour beloved it's the last hour verse 6 and verse 9 together let's look at them quickly no one who abides in him sins no one who sins has seen him or knows him drop down to verse 9 no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You know, if you rip those verses out of context, you could, you could try to teach that Christians will attain sinless perfection. But that's not what the text 
is saying. One reason we know that John is not teaching sinless perfection is because all the places in 1 John where he's teaching the fact that we need to repent of our sin, and I'll just give you a brief list. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we have no sin, we're, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. Verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess, if we confess our sin, he's faithful to, to cleanse us. Chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar. Chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 2, we are not yet like Jesus, but we will be. We're not sinless, but we will be. Chapter 5, 16 and 17, um, he talks about brothers who are committing sin. We will not be sinless, but we do not practice sin. Do you understand the distinction? To practice sin is to go on in sin, disregarding. You know, here's the deal. I don't know about you. I bet I do. I bet you feel just like I do in my sin. It makes me miserable. It makes me miserable. As I said to you a week or so ago, it just leaves this really bad taste in my mouth and I cannot spit it out. I cannot spit it out fast enough. Here's one reason you know you're a Christian. Here's one way to know. You understand the fight that you're in. <laughs> We're seeing you understand it. You know, you understand what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. You know, he talks about his post-conversion struggle with sin. I've heard theologians say, well, that's, that was Paul before he was a Christian. Hey, I think the Holy Spirit understands about you know, verb tenses because Paul's writing in the present tense. This is his post-conversion experience. He's fighting with his sin. Are you? You're supposed to be fighting with it. You're supposed to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. That's your job. That's your job. God expects you to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. We understand if we're believers, we understand there's a war going on within us. Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 7. He says, you know, where is it? He says, um, I lost it. But he says the principle, he says, I want to do good, but I see that evil is in me. Evil is in me. We understand. We still have our, our born-again nature, but we're still at war with our fallen sin nature. We know God could eradicate it, but He doesn't. He doesn't until we see Him as the Scripture tells us. So it's important that we understand this word practice. What does it mean to practice sin? What does it mean to practice righteousness? It appears, again, six times in seven verses. Let me give you a definition. Practice means to habitually, to do customarily, to perform repeatedly. It's, here's, I like this. It's your manner. It's your manner of life. I like that. It's your manner of life. It's your way of life. It's your custom of life. You constantly and repetitively do this. You're either practicing righteousness or you're practicing lawlessness. We're not talking about sinless perfection. That's not what we're talking about. But are you practicing uh, righteousness or are you practicing lawlessness? This is what God is confronting us with here tonight. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Verse 7, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse 9, the one who is born of God practices um, 
No one who is born of God practices sin. Verse 10, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. We're talking about an unbroken pattern of sin. It's a defiance and a rebellion against God and His Word. This is what John is talking about. It's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us tonight. I like verse 9, no one born of God practices sin. Why? Someone tell me from the text. No one born of God practices sin. Why? Because what? We're born. We're born of God and His seed abides in us. We simply don't have the taste for it anymore. It doesn't mean we don't fall into it sometimes. But we don't have the taste for it anymore. No one born of God lives in habitual, customary, repeated, constant, unbroken patterns of defiant sin against the Lord. It costs too much. It hurts too much. There's too much collateral damage. It's misery. We know from Scripture. We know personally too, don't we? There's a misery to being in sin. But conversion turns our defiance into compliance. Again, not perfectly, but it gives us a heart of compliance. We no longer have that defiant heart. We have a compliant heart. Again, not in perfection. I remember when I was, when I was a, a religious man. And I would sit out there. I had a, we, when I was... A, Younger, I was, before I was 28, I'd still go to church sometime to please my mom, and she would cook me a Sunday meal if I would come to church. So I would go and please my mom. And we had a really sorry preacher. He didn't preach very good. And what I mean by that is he didn't preach from the Bible. You know, he was, but every once in a while, he would actually say something that you know, made me uncomfortable. I didn't like it. He was always getting in my face. The Holy Spirit was. Even in this sorry church with this sorry preacher. You know, One theologian said, God's going to get His people in spite of me. In spite of the, 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 uh, how inept the preacher is, God's going to get His people. And, uh, but I used to hate it when I would get convicted. Some of you could probably give testimony to that. But now I get Psalm 119. I love God's Word. Yes, it convicts me. Yes, I, I look into it and I see I have this flaw and I have this flaw and I have this flaw. I've got a lot of work to do. But I cry out to God, help me, Lord. Help me. Give me a spirit of repentance. Help me to, to love You enough to forsake this sin. You know the psalmist says in 119, he loves God's Word. He treasures God's Word. He delights in God's words. He rejoices in God's Word. He hungers and he pursues God's Word. This is what John is talking about. This is true conversion. It's not, oh, I was baptized when I was eight. It's not that. It's not that. We have, the Christian has traded his slavery to sin for his slavery to righteousness. I don't have time to read it, but just go read Romans 6, 16 to 18. And in the, middle, in the midst there it says that we have become obedient from the heart. We're obedient from the heart. Not because we're religious, but because our heart has changed. And David is the perfect example, isn't he? David was a man after God's own heart. David loved God's Word. David wrote God's Word. What did David do? You know the story. I'm sure everyone in here knows the story. 
he committed murder and adultery. And I guess if we, were, if we were in David's orbit and we saw that, we were aware of that, we'd have to say, man, there's no way that guy's a Christian. There's no way he could be a Christian and do that. Right? But how do we know David was a Christian? <laughs> God shows us his heart in Psalm 38. I'm just going to read to you very quickly. Psalm 38. Psalm 38. This is what sin did to David's heart. And if you're a Christian tonight, this is what sin will do to your heart. David says, For my iniquities are gone over my head. I'm in Psalm 38, verse 4. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester. Because of my folly, I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Verse 17, For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. There's a born-again soul. A born-again soul. And you guys know the great text. You guys know the great text. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we see this, you know, uh, Nathan comes to David. He says, you are the man. And David repents in this beautiful psalm. He says, Lord, Psalm 51, he says, Lord, be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. Listen to this. Wash me, cleanse me, purify me, deliver me, make me uh, hear joy and gladness. Hide thy, hide thy face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a new heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take away thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. This is a born again believer. This is a man in love with God. Okay, I'm going to close real quick with some advice from John Piper. Listen to what John Piper says. It is both relief and heartache to know that all true believers have sin remaining in them. This does not mean that we should be complacent with sin. It means we must fight it every day. We are commanded to constantly kill the sin that remains in our lives. This is not optional. This is, the mor this is mortal combat. Sin dies or we die. Not that we ever become sinless in this life, but we go on killing sin every day. We do not settle in with sin. We fight sin and we seek to eradicate it. Now, I'm going to give you ten, ten tips. You know, you're not going to be able to write them all down. If you want them, email me. I'll send them to you. Ten tips from John Piper on how to fight sin in your life. Consciously reckon that that your old self, your pre-Christ self, is dead. Number two, cultivate enmity with sin. Ponder how sin killed Jesus. Hate sin. Number three, refuse to be bullied by sin's deceits and manipulations. Sin is a liar. Number four, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, declare radical allegiance to God. Number five, step away from those open portals of sin. Stay clear of temptation. I mean, this is not brain surgery, is it? Number six, develop mental habits of renewing your mind in God-centeredness, obviously being in the Scriptures. Number seven, admit failure and confess all known sin every day. I think that's, that's incredible advice. Admit failure, confess all known sin every day. Ask for the Spirit's help and power. 
Number nine, be an active part of a Christian fellowship. Be accountable to others. Number ten, fight your sinful impulses with all your might. And I would add three more. Beat, beat your sin today. The besetting sin, the sin you've struggled with for so long, beat it today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got to be an alcoholic. You've got to understand you're like an alcoholic. An alcoholic doesn't worry about tomorrow. He's just worried about today. I can't drink today. This is one way to, to, to make progress in, in your war with sin. Win today. Win today. The second thing is expect to win. <laughs> you know, expect to win. Expect to win by the power of the Spirit of God at work in your life. And always remember, I know you know this if you've been a Christian very long, God's better. God's better than that sin. That sin's going to leave a terrible aftertaste in your mouth. God is better. Obedience is better. Obedience is joy. <laughs> Obedience is fellowship. We don't, we don't just keep rules. That's not what biblical Christianity is about. We walk with God because He's so beautiful. He's so compelling. We are in love with Him. So tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you've just been merely religious, I exhort you to drive a stake in the ground and get real with God. No more just play religion with God. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to be a disciple. You're not going to become a disciple to impress God. You're going to become a disciple because you have to because He's so awesome and because He has saved you with His amazing grace. And if you're a Christian tonight and you, you have sin in your life that you struggle with, you know it's the one right in the forefront of your mind. It's right in your heart right now. Give it to God. Expect to win. Fight it. Fight it every day. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. Beloved, if we understand what the Bible is teaching, <laughs> God has come for us. He's the great interventionist. He has come for us. And he's taking our sin from us. It's a process, you know. Piper says, well, you know, Piper asked the question, why is sanctification so slow? And I, I think he gives a good answer to it, and I'm done. He gives a good answer to it, I think. So you won't ever forget that you need him every single day. You can never do it on your own. You can't do any aspect of Christianity on your own. If you think you can roll out of bed in the morning and do it on your own, you've been deceived. You can't do anything on your own. You need God every day. I need God every day. Don't you love it? Every day. I can't get lazy and blow Him off for 30 days. I need Him every day. You do too, beloved. You do too. You do too. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. It's a strong Word. It almost always is. We thank You, Lord, that You speak truth to us. You don't treat us like children. You don't treat us like, you know, people that can't understand simple propositions. You give us the truth and then You call us to act. And we thank You, Lord. We thank You that You've made the distinction quite clear. We're either, we either practice lawlessness or we practice righteousness. There's really no place to be in the middle. 
But Lord, we, are, we rejoice and give thanks that You've called us to Yourself that we would be slaves of righteousness. No more slaves to lawlessness, but slaves of righteousness. And yes, we struggle with our sin. We know we're not sinless. But You've told us, Lord, we won't be sinless, but You've also told us not to be complacent in it. You've called us to fight it. We're not to practice sin. We're not to go on in sin. We're not to have the mindset of living in rebellion against Your clear teaching. So Lord, we pray for Your help. We pray the prayer of David. Cleanse us and wash us. Renew us. Restore unto us the joy of Your salvation. Lord, we, we seek to leave our sin here tonight. We confess it to You. Cleanse us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, Amen. Thank you.